If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 33. Um, That's where we'll be reading and studying, so if you'd like to follow along, that's where we'll be. So please follow along there in Genesis 33. Remember last week we studied that Jacob was preparing for this meeting with Esau before God allowed him to come into the promised land. He said, "You've you've got to do this. You've got to meet with Esau, and then you've got to learn some lessons. It's now time for them to meet. Chapter 33, verse 1, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let, us, let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Father, thank you for your word and thank you that you have brought us here this morning. Lord, we pray for you to work through your word into our hearts and minds this morning. We pray for those who are here and we pray for those who can't be with us this morning from sickness. My God, we know that's going around a lot, but Lord, we pray that you would use that Work through even that in our lives, Lord, to shape us, to mold us, to conform us to the image of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name, amen. Well, as we read this part of Jacob's life, the the focus here really is clearly on this meeting with Esau, this reconciliation between twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. I love the Advent reading that we had this morning that spoke about reconciliation with God and with men because of Jesus Christ. It's, it's great how the Lord works, um, and He plans and He prepares and He does everything that we could never do, all for His glory. But Jacob and Esau, 
um, were going to come together. They're coming together in this passage, but they're not going to have a relationship after this much. But it was still important for them to reconcile through a wrong that had been done to come together to make things right between one another before God. Because God, brothers and sisters, is always concerned about relationships, our relationships. Throughout the scriptures, we learn so much about people-to-people, people-to-God relationships. Our Our relationship with our good creator God has been ruined. It's been broken by sin. And our relationship with everybody else around us is made greatly more difficult or even at times impossible because of sin. It's been ruined, all of it. Our relationships are all tainted with sin. But our relationship with God himself must be restored before we die or before we come to stand before him at the end or we will face his justice, his righteousness, his judgment forever. But because of Jesus... And the reason that we're celebrating this time of year, this whole season, because of the birth of Jesus to a virgin 2,000 years ago, his perfect life can be credited to us while our sins can be credited to him by God's grace through faith because he suffered and he died in the place of sinners and then he rose from the grave. And I hope that message never gets tiring to any of us. I hope that never becomes boring or something we just dismiss. That is the best news, the greatest good news that the world has ever known or heard about. So hopefully it never becomes less than that for us each time we hear it, sing it, read about it, pray it. Our relationship with God can be made right through Jesus. But then comes our relationships with the people around us the people all around us. Now, for some reason, brothers and sisters, I can't figure this out because it's true of me too. I'm not just going to point the finger at all of you without my three fingers being pointed right back at myself here. But for some reason, I can't figure it out. We think that the relationships with the people around us is is more difficult than our relationship with God. Sometimes we think, you know, that God who is all-powerful, eternal, holy, righteous, and perfect in everything he does and says, and and we ourselves are sinful and weak and unable to please him in our deeds. He has never done or said anything wrong. We All we do is say and do wrong, that we are sinful before him. The break in the relationship is totally, completely my fault and your fault. We are completely in the wrong. He is completely in the right. But for some reason... We think that's a relationship that's easier to reconcile than the relationship between sinner to sinner, between us one to another. When there's a problem with another person, not between a 100% righteous person and a 100% sinful person, but between sinner and sinner, somehow that seems more difficult to us oftentimes than, than the impossible to fix relationship between us and God. Well, because Jesus did that. But so, that, that's how we discount what Jesus did, isn't it? That's how we discount our sin, how offensive it is to God, His holiness, Jesus' perfect life, death, resurrection, His work. We, we discount that, and then we, we just make a bigger deal out of problems with one another than that relationship. And often it's because one or both of us believe Well, I'm 100% righteous, and that person is 100% wrong, at least in this situation. I'm right, she's wrong. And in no case is it ever true that one human being is 100% righteous. Perfect in all speech and action. 
problems arise between people. Things are going to happen. Conflict is going to happen. Sin is going to come in between relationships between people. Problems can also arise because we don't view things the way that other people view things, do we? We all have unique perspectives on events, things that people have said, things that people have done. We have unique ways of of perceiving them, of storing them in our minds and then retrieving them later on. In short, our memory isn't perfect, right? As much as we sometimes just make a, a claim and stand on it, nope, this is what happened and it's all wrong on them and it was all right on me and our memory isn't perfect. In order to reconcile, things are going to have to change within us, within our hearts and our minds so that we can reconcile. But what if I don't want to reconcile? What if I don't feel like it? The first uh, point there in your notes is that Christians must reconcile. We must reconcile. Now, if you're not a Christian, you would not claim Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior. You must reconcile to God through Him. He is the only way to be reconciled to God. And don't leave here without finding out what that means, what that looks like. People around you, uh, the pastors here, the person at the information counter, the people who are walking around in the lobby would love to tell you all about this Jesus and how to be reconciled with God. But for you, brother and sister, we don't have a choice. After we have been reconciled with God through Jesus, we must reconcile with other people. What makes you say that? What makes you think that's okay to say to people? Because Jesus said it in Mark eleven twenty five, that if you're praying and you think of something you have against somebody, you need to forgive them. He said in Matthew five twenty three, if you're worshiping and you realize somebody has something against you, you stop worshiping and you first go reconcile with your brother and then come worship. Now, as a side note, and I know that we're running short on time already, <laughs> but this is an important note. At no other point in Scripture does God tell you, don't worship. Worshiping is, uh, is what we're made for. That's why he created us. And when we don't worship, it's sin not to worship God. So he says, don't, he doesn't say don't worship. He says, stop your worship. Put it on pause. Go reconcile. Again, that relationship that's important with God, to God. Reconcile with your brother. Then come back and worship. At no other point are we told, except in communion, and, and many of you say, yeah, yeah, in the Lord's Supper, he says, you know, if you haven't examined yourself, don't partake. He doesn't say that either. He says, he says examine yourself, then partake. Again, it's not don't do it, it it's take care of the issue. It, we have to be mindful of sin that comes between us and brothers and sisters, or sin that comes between us and God, deal with that, and then get back to worship. But we're not allowed to even worship until we've done that. You say, but this is a scary thought. You know, I, I don't want to have to talk to somebody about sin, especially if I'm the one that did it. <laughs> if I'm the one that sinned, that can cause a lot of anxiety, nervousness, stress, fear. You know, I can't worship until I've done this, so I need to do this, but this is really hard. Let's just acknowledge this is not going to be comfortable or easy, right, to, to talk with people about sin, whether we're talking with someone about sin they did or about sin that we've committed against them. This is not going to be easy. Let's also acknowledge that confronting or speaking about sin, the uncomfortableness of it is raised by the offensiveness of the sin, right? If you talk about somebody behind their back, you say something mean, you gossip about somebody, that's going to be a hard conversation to have with them. 
here's what I did. I need to confess this to you. But if you have stolen the family inheritance and run away for 20 years, that's going to be a little bit harder of a conversation probably, right? So, so the offensiveness of the sin is just going to raise it all the more, but it has to be done. We have to, we must reconcile before we can worship. But not only that, at the risk of our own souls, we must forgive others. What are you talking about? Jesus in Matthew 6, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We must reconcile. We have to work through sin. Now, we've already acknowledged this is going to be hard, and we're all on the same page with that. I mean, for some of you, just the thought of having to go to somebody and talk with somebody, not even about sin, just talk to somebody, <laughs> is, is so difficult and, and anxiety-inducing that you'd rather jump out of an airplane, even with a parachute, right? <laughs> or drive down I-17. Ooh. But listen, this is the stuff, this reconciliation, this forgiveness, working through things, this is the stuff that binds us together in fellowship and unity that exceeds any kind of friendship or relationship that the world has even known of, let alone acquaintance, anything that the world's ever heard of. Colossians 3, there's so much here and we tend to break it up, but listen to the overall theme of verses 12 to 15 of Colossians 3. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Some of us, we have to bear with one another, right? We're bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So if you were looking for where does it actually say in the Bible, we have to forgive. Here it is. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Do you hear the necessity of forgiveness for unity, for fellowship in the church? It doesn't say that the that unity and harmony in the church is dependent on you never doing anything wrong. It just kind of takes for granted that you're going to do something wrong. I'm going to say something wrong to one of you or not say something I should say. Or we're going to offend somebody in some way. We're going to sin and mess up because that's kind of what we're left with until the Lord returns for us. He's working with us to make that happen less and less often, Lord willing. But until he brings us home, that's going to happen. Our unity and fellowship is not dependent on everybody being perfect, but on everybody being humble, loving, forgiving one another can't make bread without flour. Well, I guess in some places you can now, <laughs> but you, you can't make regular bread without flour. You can't make regular unity within the church without forgiveness. It's part of what binds us together. So it's necessary before we can worship. It's necessary for our fellowship. It's necessary for our own sake to even have our own sins forgiven. So with that understanding, how do we do it? What, what does it look like? As difficult as it's going to be, how can we do it? What should it look like? Well, here in Exodus, excuse me, in Genesis 33, we have an example. Now, this is just one example. There may be more to our experience than what's happening here. There are many other verses we could turn to. There's much more information in the Scriptures. But this is a, a really good example given to us in Genesis for how to reconcile between brothers. And it can be just as simple as two steps. Step one, verses 1 through 11, deal with the sin from the past. Deal with the sin from the past. Now you say, well, that's kind of obvious. But it's not quite as obvious because you see at no point does either brother start to say, you should never have 
or you always... <laughs> They're not attacking each other. In the verses here, we're going to see that the issue, the sin is going to be dealt with. We'll see it more clearly as we go along. But there are four parts to this first step. In, in the first part, A, deal with the sin from the past with resolve. Verses 1 to 3, resolve. Be resolved to deal with it. Jacob looks in verse 1, and here comes Esau, all 400 men with him. There's no amount of deceit or scheming or manipulation or lying or power that's going to get him out of this. What's he going to do? Do you remember back in chapter 32, verses 7 and 8, he said, I'm going to divide up half my camp and half of them are going to go off, and if they get slaughtered, at least I'll have the other half. (laughs) And where was he going to be that whole time? (laughs) But now look where he's going to be in verse 3. He's going to be right out in front. He's going on before them, and there's no dividing his family in half. He is resolved, I'm going to face this. I've got to take care of this. We've got to work through this. That's why he let Esau know that he was back in the area. That's why despite that utter paralyzing fear that he had before, after his prayer, after his realization of who God is, he said, okay, I've got to to face this. He's right out in front. And yet we see in verses 1 and 2, just a, I I don't know how else to describe it, but just a a gut-wrenching, sickening kind of arrangement of his family. Where if Esau kills me, then he's going to start on my family. I'll put the Zilpah and Bilhah first with their kids, and then Rachel and her kids, and then uh, or Leah and her kids, and then Rachel with Joseph last, because in order of some kind of importance to him. It's a, it's, I praise God I've never had to make a decision like that. I pray that I never will. I pray that you never will have to make a decision like that. I don't know that I could. But that's what he's done. He, he's out in front. He's resolved to settle this. In case it goes bad, there's a plan, but it's a messy, it's a gross plan. But so set is he on resolving this issue, he goes out first and he faces what will come. That's the resolve, brother and sister, that we need to have to work through to deal with sin from the past. Most of the time, here's something reassuring. Hopefully this will be encouraging to you. Most of the time when you've wronged a brother or sister, you're not going to have to face them with an army of 400 men (laughs) behind them, right? There's not going to be the threat of death to you and your family most of the time. There may be anger. There may be some hurt feelings and sadness. Again, it's not going to be comfortable. It's going to be, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a time of suffering, but we must do it because God brings so much good through it. He works and He's glorified through that. Believers, we don't have a choice. We can't worship. We can't be unified together in fellowship. We don't even have an assurance of forgiveness of our set for ourselves if we don't forgive others. The other part of that is, if your brother or sister has done something wrong against you and you've said, I'm, not, I'm just going to let it go, well, there's still sin there that needs to be dealt with. And you're, not only is it not right for you to worship, it's not right for your brother or sister to worship. You're withholding his ability to be unified to the body and, and to worship the Lord and to have assurance of his sins forgiven. See, this is really important, not just for you, but for the people sitting next to you. Be resolved. Don't let anything come in your way, brother or sister, to, to resolving issues, to working through sin in the past. See, that's what Jesus meant when he, when he said in Matthew 5, 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Be so resolved to work through issues that You'd rather do that than go to prison. (laughs) That as if you were in jeopardy of going to prison, I need to resolve this. That's A. That's the first part. 
to this step. B, in verses 3 and 4, deal with the sin from the past with respect toward the other person. With respect. Like we said, at no point does either brother attack the other. Contrary to examples in popular culture and government, you can disagree with people and still love them. (laughs) You can work with the other person to deal with the sin from the past in either you or the other one or both of you. So Jacob approaches Esau with humility and respect. Verse 3, he says, he went bowing himself to the ground seven times. That's the kind of of show that you would have for a royalty, for for a king, or for someone who's in high authority over you. And and some commentators think that he was just going way overboard. He was just making too big of a show of it. It couldn't have been real. But again, the offensiveness of the wrong done (laughs) may be... the, you know, made his, his, this position appropriate, right? I mean, it was such an egregious wrong. Um, this kind of display was important. And it may have been, it may have been exactly what God used to soften Esau's heart. Esau went from, I'm going to kill my brother, to running up and hugging him and kissing him and weeping together. It may have been this very act. But it's a respectful thing to do, to to go to your brother, to go to your sister when there's an offense, when there's a wrong, and go work that out with that person. The hallmark passage for this, of course, many of you have already thought of is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell everybody else because it was so crazy and bad, right? He says, go to your brother and tell him between you and him alone. You go work it out with that person. Respect. That's respect. Jacob was the one who sinned, but he's taking the initiative to seek out his brother to reconcile and do it respectfully. Philippians 2, 3 says that we're not supposed to do anything, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't further your own ends at the expense of others. Don't exalt yourselves. Everything should be done. It says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves in every way, in everything. See, even when we're, how much more when we're approaching someone to talk about sin? Should we be approaching with humility, with respect, as if we're approaching a superior? That's how we go to one another to deal with this. So Jacob approached Esau with respect. And look how, look how Esau approaches Jacob. Again, at some point, God had so worked in Esau's heart that he changed from I'm going to kill him to I'm going to hug him <laughs> and cry on him and, and kiss him. The word for neck there is interesting, that he fell on his neck. It, it, means, it signifies specifically the back of the neck. It, it's almost like you get the picture that Jacob was in the middle of his seventh bow when Esau came running up and just fell on him and just, come here, brother. That level of affection continues throughout. Look at verse 8. Esau says, what's all this for? Jacob says, it's to find sight and the favor in the sight of my Lord. Esau says, I have enough, my brother. So there's respect from Jacob to Esau in humility. There's respect from Esau to Jacob in affection, in love for the brother that wronged him and wronged him in in huge and and amazingly um, callous ways when he deceived him before. So there's a great amount of respect between these twin brothers. The one who did the wrong is respectfully humble. The one who was wronged is respectfully affectionate. What an example here we have of dealing with sin from the past together. Both sides are making an effort. Now, we know Jacob worships the Lord, knows the Lord. We don't see much of that from Esau, but here, again, this must be God's work in his heart to soften it, to bring them together. Now, we can't, we can't count on this to happen with everyone that we talk to about sin, right? 
It's not going to work this way every single time. We don't have control over that, but this is what it should look like, church. If someone from this side of the room says something to that side of the room, (laughs) to somebody over here, what it should look like is the two people coming together, one of them in humility, one of them with affection, and let's work on that sin together. Let's get rid of that, not get rid of each other. Next, C, the next step, the next part of this step is to deal with the sin from the past with reverence to God, verses 5 through 7. With reverence to God, as the men come together, Esau sees Jacob's family and says, who are these people? Jacob says, these are my kids. Is that what he says? No, he says, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then they all come, they bow before Esau, and Jacob says, this is who God gave me. God's grace, God's work for Jacob is a theme that continues throughout Jacob's talk with Esau, but it doesn't really ever come up for Esau. Jacob has this profound recognition now of God's grace in his life in every area that he didn't have before and that Esau apparently doesn't have. Esau says, Look, what's all this animals for? What's this company for? Jacob says, it's, to, it's a gift to find favor, grace in your sight. And we'll talk about the gift more in a few minutes, but I don't deserve <laughs> your forgiveness, I, I, but I hope that you will. I'm hoping it's for your grace that you will. Esau's response in verse 9 is, oh, don't worry about that. I have enough. Keep what you have so you can share with others, so you can glorify God. Keep what you have for yourself, he says. That's how Esau is thinking. Jacob is thinking about the Lord and how he deserves punishment and judgment, but he keeps on getting grace. He keeps on getting grace and blessing. So Jacob says, no, if I have found grace, if I've found favor in your sight, accept this. Why? Because seeing your face The face of a brother who loves and forgives is like seeing the face of God. You've accepted me. Wow. Jacob sees the work of God in the face of his brother Esau. Esau's face should be twisted up and contorted with anger and wrath and and, and murder and revenge. But instead, there's a smile. There's forgiveness. That can only be the work of God. So Jacob sees God's work here. So he ends the discussion about the gift in verse 11. God has dealt graciously with me. He acknowledges it to himself, to Esau, to the whole family that's standing around. This has all been God's work of grace. Every part of Jacob's speech is saturated with God. Who he is and what he's done, it's all of God. Even to wrap up the chapter, he's going to be worshiping God. But see, every one of our conversations should be like this. They should be like this, Ephesians 4.29. We, we only say, such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Colossians 4, let your speech always be seasoned, gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And that's why we have Galatians 6 the way we do. If you're, when your brother is caught in a sin, you go to him and you restore him as harshly as you can. You beat him over the head until he repents. With kindness. Watching out for yourself, lest you fall into the same temptation. All of this horizontal outward reconciliation, all of the forgiveness and and confrontation is necessary, but it's effective only when it's also vertical and upward, with reverence to God. Reconciliation between brothers is always a work of grace from God in the hearts of both people, and we seek it only in faith, rightly. You say, yeah, okay, well, this is important and we're supposed to do it and I got to do it, but I can't do this, it's too hard. <laughs> I, I just can't do this. I, you know, forgive someone when they've wronged me or, or be respectful when they've wronged me. I'm supposed to, you know, love them and, and, and go through this. 
You don't know how much that hurt when they did that. You don't know how hard this is, that you're, what you're asking me to do. Brother and sister, I'm not asking you to do this. God is telling us to do this. God tells us that we have to forgive. In Matthew 18, after that passage that we talked about, on confronting and restoring a sinning brother, Peter says, all right, Jesus, we got it. it. We're supposed to do this. And so how many times are we supposed to do this? Seven times, right? Because that's really generous. Jesus says, no, 77 times. And everybody must have just, huh? I mean, you'd lose track. You'd lose count. Yeah. <laughs> You'll lose count before, because you're just going to keep on forgiving. So in verses 23 to 35 of Matthew 18, Jesus told that parable about the unforgiving servant. He owed essentially billions of dollars to his master. And his master said, it's time for me to collect it. If you don't have it, I'm throwing you in jail. He begged for mercy, and the master forgave it all. He went out and found another servant, this servant did, and he owed him thousands of dollars, and he said, pay it all. He said, I can't, so I'm throwing you in prison. No mercy at all. So the master came and, and threw him in prison because he wouldn't forgive. Jesus said, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Because we owe God a debt of billions, trillions of dollars that we could never repay. And all he tells us to do is beg for mercy because of his son, Jesus Christ, and he gives it to us in overflowing abundance, his mercy, his steadfast love. He says, if I've forgiven you that, you, you surely you can forgive when someone has done something wrong against you. It's only when we understand God's great grace to forgive us of our great debt that we can learn to forgive others, the debt that they have against us, even when it is great. He sets the standard, and then he empowers us to do it. You say, well, that's all great, but I still can't do it. I guess I just need some more faith. Jesus had an answer for that, too. In Luke 17, he was teaching about forgiveness, and he said, you must forgive. The apostles said, increase our faith. We can't do this, Jesus. We need some faith. Jesus said, if you had faith like a little mustard seed, you could uproot the mulberry tree and throw it in the ocean. It would do it. You don't need more faith. The faith that we have comes from God, and God is all. He is everything. It's not the size of our faith. It's the size of our God. So Jesus told him a parable of the unworthy servant. The servant has worked all day long in the field. And the servant, from sunup to sundown, the servant has worked all day long. When the servant comes in, Jesus says, what do you say? Thank you, servant. Now sit down. Let me make you a meal. No, the master says, you've been working all day. Now make my dinner, and I will eat. And when I'm done, then you can eat. There's no big applause from the master, no, no big giving thanks for the servant from the master for doing his job. That's what he was supposed to do. So Jesus says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's what he told us we have to do. It's our duty. In other words, you have come into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. You already have all the faith you need. Now it's our duty to obey. So out of reverence to God, out of reverence to our great King and our Lord, we deal with sin from the past. That's how this can happen. It's not because any of us are so great or so wonderful. It's because our God is so great and so wonderful. D, the last part of this step, is to deal with the sin from the past with restitution. Restitution. The forgiveness is necessary. Working through confrontation coming together to come up with a solution. I mean, it's critical for our worship, for our forgiveness, for our fellowship, but another part of the step can be overlooked, and that's restitution. When this is overlooked, resentment can follow, anger, 
division, further sin and unforgiveness can happen when this step is skipped. So, so Jacob sent that gift, over 550 animals, to his brother Esau. And at first, Esau misses the point. He says, you know, I don't need all that stuff. You know, I've got enough, he said. The word there is not the word enough. The word is much. I have so much. I got enough stuff. I don't need your stuff. Forget the stuff. (laughs) He says, it's not important. Jacob says, no, if I've found favor, if you accept this, it, it signals that you're accepting my forgiveness. You're accepting my gift as a grace to you. It's forgiveness, and you're forgiving me. It's all over with after this. And Jacob doesn't say, I have enough. The original word there is where Jacob says, I have all. I have all. How can he say he has all? Because he has the Lord. The Lord is the one who gave it all to him. The Lord could take it all away, and he'd still have all. Because the Lord promised, and the Lord fulfills his promises. So he gave much as restitution. It's the same attitude the people had who responded to John the Baptist in his preaching in Luke 3. He said, you have to repent. You need to bear fruits worthy of repentance. I mean, it needs to matter in your life. You can't just say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll turn away from it and just move on with life. If it's true that you're turning away from sin, there's going to be some fruit of that. They said, well, what does it look like? He said, if you're in the crowd, everybody who's in the crowd, share your food and and clothing and all of your resources with those who are in need. If you're a tax collector, don't take more than you're supposed to, like they had been doing. If you're a soldier, don't extort money by threats or false accusation, like they had been doing. Be content with your wages. The important part of restitution is not that you're signaling undoing something. We can't undo what we've done in the past. You're signaling that you're reversing. You can't make up for what you did in the past. You can't undo that, but you can reverse direction. So now, instead of taking and taking, I'm giving. Instead of receiving, I'm giving back, and I'm signaling, I'm showing that I'm repentant, and rather than wronging, I'm trying to bring a blessing. That's why Jesus said that about Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Today, salvation has come to this house. It wasn't because Zacchaeus bought that salvation by giving away half of what he had and four times what he had taken away from other people. It was the heart change of repentance that produced giving instead of all the taking. That's why repentance is so necessary when we come to believe through Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith. We turn away from sin. We turn away from self. We turn away from Satan and the world. We turn to him and we signal that by giving him glory instead of taking glory for ourselves in sin. That's, that's why we give him, the only thing we can give him, ourselves. We, we give him our all. And you have Romans 12 in your notes just to, to remind us of that living sacrifice. So we must deal with sin. That's step one. And we will, we will be able to finish this because we'll be able to get through this, I promise, with a little bit of patience. Number two, step two, deprive sin of nourishment so that it doesn't return. Verses 12 through 20. Okay, you've dealt with sin in the past, but now what are we going to do about now? And what are we going to do about the future? Well, we've got we've to choke out sin. We've got to deprive sin of any kind of nourishment so that it doesn't come back. Well, they're supposed to sin 77 times. They are, and you are. We don't want to have to do that. We don't want to have to rely on that. There are two parts to this step. Number one, make room for each other. Verses 12 through 16 is a little bit of a confusing section because it sounds like Esau says, all right, Jacob, now that we've reconciled, come home with me and live with me in Seir. And Jacob says, I can't go that fast. You go ahead and I'll meet you there. And he doesn't go. Instead, he goes north. Esau goes south. He says, okay, you're coming with me. He's head south and Jacob gets north. (laughs) 
It, many scholars say, well, there goes Jacob again, deceiving. You know, he's back to his old tricks. And they condemn him. And that could be correct. If that's what's happening here, then this is a really good example of what not to do after you've reconciled, right? <laughs> Go back to the deceiving and lying and tricking and all of that. But to me, that doesn't make any sense. Why, does, why is Esau in Seir to begin with? Because he doesn't have an inheritance in the promised land that belongs to Jacob. Seir is outside the promised land that was given by God to Abraham, to Isaac, and now to Jacob. Esau lives there because he doesn't have any portion of it. Jacob isn't going to just throw all of that away and say, okay, Esau, I'll just come live with you. It doesn't make sense that that would be what's happening here. I believe this was an invitation for Jacob to come visit Esau in Seir. Come visit me. It's an open invitation, not an immediate one. The hurry for Esau to get back would now that, would be that he's got 400 men with him, and those are the men that are, would be depended on to protect the families back home where they're not at right now. They need to get back there. They want to get back quickly. Jacob says, I can't go that fast. I can't keep up with you. I'll get down there later. Esau says, if you're not coming now, you're pretty exposed out here. Let me have some men here to stay with you to protect you. Jacob says, there's no need. Again, my speculation is because he's trusting the Lord to protect him. He says, that's why he says, let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. He's appealing to the grace here. Let me out of that responsibility to care for them and send them back and, and owe you in any way. But they part. They part ways. And, and so as they come apart, sometimes physically being separate from those that you might continue to struggle with or sin against can be helpful. Sometimes that's helpful to prevent further sin. You look at um, Acts 15 and, and Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas said, let's bring John Mark with us. And Paul says, no way. I'm not taking the guy that deserted us last time. And they parted ways. They had such a sharp disagreement, they parted ways. But later on, they came back together. There was reconciliation there. Sometimes parting and just making room for one another is the answer for avoiding sin. Maybe you can't serve together so closely in ministry, or maybe, maybe you can't sit next to each other in church. <laughs> God's going to work on your heart through the time. He's, he's going to bring you closer together. You can still have love, respect, reconciliation, forgiveness, even if you can't live next door to each other. Make room for one another. Second part Make an intentional return to worship. After you've reconciled, you've got to be intentional to return to worship. We, we don't see either one of these men dwelling on what happened. Esau went down to Seir. Jacob headed north to Succoth. He built a house. We don't know how long he was there. It doesn't tell us. We don't know why, but after a, after a time, he said, that's long enough. Let's move. He moves uh, into the land. He actually comes back into the land, the promised land, Canaan. Not all the way back to Bethel, but he, he stays at Shechem. How long is he there? Again, we're not told, but it's long enough to buy land, erect an altar, and live because of God, worshiping God with that altar, rather than living in bitterness and resentment. He worshiped. He followed the example of Abraham. As soon as Abraham came into the land, he came to Shechem. He built an altar and he worshiped. Jacob does the same thing, comes into the land at Shechem, and he builds this altar, and he says, he says God El God, Elohe, God of Israel. He uses the name that the angel gave him in chapter 32, the God of Israel. It's a public declaration. I don't worship the gods around me. I don't worship the pagan false gods. I worship the true God. And that sets up next week's lessons from chapter 34. But this is a key aspect in preventing sin between brothers and sisters when we're all focusing on worship. How can, how can you... Take little things 
personally and, and, and be offended easily when you're worshiping God? How are you probably going to be able to say anything mean or nasty to anybody else or do something mean or nasty when you're worshiping? That's what we're made for. That's what we're redeemed to be able to do. So first be reconciled, Jesus says, and then come worship. We're worshiping in our lives, and we're worshiping in our lives together. This is God's plan for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us. Father, we praise you and thank you, God, that even though we deserve your wrath, God, we deserve your anger, your punishment forever. Lord, it's a, it's a terrible thought to think of hell. God, it's a scary thought to think of being in a place of, of terror and punishment forever. God, it's a scary thought, but it's a true thought because, God, that's what we deserve. That's what we should have except for Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, thank you for reconciling us to you. God, thank you for the grace of your mercy and your forgiveness in Jesus Christ to bring us to yourself. God, you never did anything wrong, but you did all of the work that we can be saved. What a God. God, there is no God like you. There is no thought that's like your thoughts. There are no ways that are like your ways. They're higher than ours. They're better than ours. We praise you. We worship you for that. God, we pray that you would make us living sacrifices, that you would make us living pictures of that reconciliation by, God, us working through forgiveness with one another. God, that when we sin, Ecclesiastes says, there is no one who does not sin. There's no righteous man on earth who does not sin. God, we're going we're gonna to mess up. But God, because of Jesus, we have forgiveness when we confess our sins to you. And because of Jesus, we have, we have forgiveness from one another when we confess. God, I pray that that would be made real and true in each of our lives. God, that instead of us trying to get even, or instead of us growing in bitterness or resentment, or instead of us just leaving this family, God, that you would bring us together in forgiveness, in love and reconciliation. God, as only you can do by your grace because of our Savior. God, we celebrate him. We celebrate his birth. We celebrate his life, his death, his resurrection. We celebrate God and, and, and praise him for praying for us now at your right hand. God, thank you. Thank you. In his name, Jesus' name, amen.